Partially Examined Life relies on your support. To find out how to help in ways that are cheap or even free for you, check out partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. Hey, you're listening to Partially Examined Life, episode 183 on Mills on Liberty from 1859. Part two, we gave the basic principles of the text and got right into some heavy-duty applied discussion of how much censure of various kinds of speech that you might find objectionable or you might want to engage in. I think maybe we should set aside for a little bit here some of these very practical, interesting issues just to make sure that we get at some of the very rich and involved topics brought up by the text. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about the whole question of partial truths and how they're important to the argument for Mills. So what's a central quote about that that we want to start off with there? I think it's about page 40 where he gets into that. So he says, we have hitherto considered only two possibilities that the received opinion may be false and some other opinion consequently true. Really, though, he says that often it's the case that instead of one being true and the other false, they, quote, share the truth between them, and the non-conforming opinion is needed to supply the remainder of the truth, of which the received doctrine embodies only a part. Popular opinions on subjects not palpable to sense are often true, but seldom or never the whole truth. Exaggerated, distorted, disjoined from the truths by which they ought to be accompanied and limited, I think that's a really important point, And then that last point, I just think to elaborate, I think what people often don't understand is that it's not just a particular truth that's important, it's whether it has the right relations to the rest of our beliefs, whether it's functioning properly within our network of beliefs. So I was trying to think whether his way of talking about this, about partial truths, is better or worse than talking about things in terms of dialectical responses, which... Anything that sounds Hegelian sounds like it could only obscure things, could only make it worse. But I like the idea, which I think is very much captured by the way that Mill expresses this, that certain ideas become ascendant, and that causes the neglect of something else that is sort of equally needs to be addressed in some way. And so if you're really thinking about this explicitly in terms of dialectic, you might say that then socially... It's almost like the second idea takes revenge on the first one, but even just talking about periods of ascendancy and descendancy. So, right, you might have, I think, to bring up the race issue that we are already talking about, the difference between justice requires race blindness, right? You should just, everybody should get a job based on their merits. Everybody should, in any sort of contest, you should just completely disregard notions of race. And that sounds like a great, yeah, if we had been doing that all along, then we wouldn't have had racism in the first place. We wouldn't have any of these problems. But then someone could respond, sort of, it seems pretty true, but the partial truth that is neglecting is, well, the history of racism, which means that maybe something like affirmative action is necessary. Okay, so maybe that becomes ascendant and becomes socially dominating, and then it the original fairness thing gets kind of neglected and say, hey, is it really fair that you're letting more people in this school with lower test scores or whatever, blah, 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 and that I am personally, as the white person who is on the border, am not able to get in here because of this policy? Like, well, there's something to that too. And it's not surprising because it fits that general form, right, of the tension between the just and the good. 
and rights and maximizing social well-being. And that's just a perennial conversation that we're always going to have to have in order to draw very tricky lines, right? One thing that he says earlier, which I think bears on this question of truth, is that he has this love of the marketplace of ideas and neglected truths and partial truths and you can see how intellectual he was himself and you know he was a super super smart like a prodigy on his own and his love of intellectual combat is very high yet earlier he says that look truth doesn't out itself on its own (laughs) he says the dictum that truth always triumphs over persecution is one of those pleasant falsehoods which men repeat after one another till they pass into commonplaces but into which experience refutes It is a piece of idle sentimentality that truth, merely as truth, has any inherent power denied to error of prevailing against the dungeon and the stake. And so in in that context, he's talking about the fact that persecution of people for their ideas, regardless of whether they're true or not, so let's take the case in which they are true, but they're being persecuted against falsely. Just because those ideas are true doesn't mean that they're going to triumph over that persecution. He admits that in the long run, and particularly because of this ethic of a, a marketplace of ideas and pushing towards that, that eventually the truth will out, but that it's not a, a simplistic manner in which it does, that it can easily be subverted by social and political and legal pressures. Don't people usually have in mind when they say the truth will eventually out that it's like verifiable factual truth, right? That you could prosecute Galileo for his various claims about astronomy, but then just anybody else goes and reproduces the experiment and they'll find the same thing. So in that sense, yeah, you could repress it for a long time, but truth is eventually out. Whereas the example that he gives is about how many times did the Protestant Reformation almost happen and it just get put down, put down, put down, and then eventually it, but clearly like the Protestantism versus Catholicism is not a matter of recognizing the truth in an obvious way that looking through a telescope would be. I think you make a good point. I always took the truth will out as, even if you're right, Mark, that it refers to fact more than other kinds of arguments, I always took it to be a calling card for that also kind of social injustice. What, What do you mean? Against oppression, right? So that the part of the activity of, of tyranny, regardless of what it is, is to basically quell opinion and public discussion of, I guess, of facts and also ways of life. I take your point, Mark. I think that you're right, that in general, it, that the phrase would refer to attempts to deny facts that are sort of facts on the ground. Well, maybe it was just a slip when you were describing, you said maybe it's a true belief that's being persecuted and then a false persecution, which sounds like it's just a mistake, but the way that you were just saying that the idea of truth will out is connected to oppression is the idea that that there's a connection between truth and freedom, right? Freedom will eventually conquer dialectically. Again, maybe you could only make this kind of equivalence if you're thinking in a weird Hegelian sort of way, but that a if you're saying sort of the manifest destiny, the progress of humanity is towards freedom, towards individuality, then saying that that will eventually happen is a form of 
truth will out. There's a, at least a family resemblance between those claims. I guess that's what I was thinking. I was taking him as being arguing against that. Well, it seems like for him, the truth will out in the long term, but yes. not in the short enough term to justify saying that it's persecution is okay. Well, he believes in general progression of humanity, right? And so that, in that respect, he would be in that sort of Hegelian camp of we're progressing towards freedom and truth and stuff like that, even if there are downturns in the market, so to speak. <laughs> There's an entropic pressure in that direction. He makes this comparison to what I thought of as a pragmatic character of belief, right? That when we read William James on belief, that he says, look, you can't know for certain these various religious propositions, but you have to have enough certainty that you can just act, you know, act even if you're not certain. And that seems to be the kind of thing that would justify, you know, we're not completely sure that racist speech is always harmful, but we're sure enough about it We've had enough recent experience about it that aren't we justified in putting that down? And he wants to say, no, those two things are not comparable. The individual in making a decision like that, that I need to proceed based on my best judgment of things. Yeah, there is something comparable in the way a society has to decide, say, what tax law to adopt and is going to have some economic conclusions that given that economics is not a very certain science, they can't be sure about, but they have to make some decision in policy, but that should not extend to persecution. Yeah, this is about page 17 to 18 that he's making this argument. So as the objection frames it, we have to live without absolute certainty all the time. And there's a certain kind of, he had been arguing before about don't assume infallibility. But the one making the objection says, well, if you're allowing the propagation of error, you're assuming a kind of infallibility anyway, and we all must proceed without absolute certainty. And Mill's ultimate point is that, yes, for the purposes of action, you're allowed in sort of tacitly assuming a kind of infallibility, but that doesn't mean that you're allowed to assume that for the purposes of suppressing other people's speech. Those are two different cases. Imposing a social finding that you think is well-established on the opinions of everyone. Yeah, so the state, let the state make all kinds of anti-racist policies, except to the extent that they involve prohibition of speech, right? So the state could have an entirely dogmatic anti-racist position and make as many policies as it wants predicated on that. Mill's not objecting to that. And so for those purposes, it assumes a kind of infallibility as it acts, but it's a whole different thing to prohibit speech and to assume infallibility, such infallibility that it can say, okay, no one ever has anything intelligent or useful to say that isn't completely in line with our point of view. So the fact in question might be that all people are morally equal, something like that. That's what policy is based on. I mean, I think Mill would support that principle, but I think to Wes's point is that the distinction is very strong between acts and speech, even on the part of a government. You know, it's one thing that a government has some set of laws, or even a society has one set of customs that govern acts, but that the restrictions on speech and thought ought to be orders of magnitude less. Yeah, so from the case of affirmative action, we said, yes, that debate kind of rages on. But if a government pursues that policy anyway, yes, it has to sort of 
say, okay, yeah, this is our conclusion about this debate and we're going to act on that. And that's fine, but it goes too far if you say, we're not going to talk about it anymore. Saying, we've drawn some conclusion about it, so we're going to act, and saying, we're never going to talk about it again are two different things. Let me give an example that's less morally fraught. There is nothing to prevent anybody from trying to build a perpetual motion machine and talking about how they have built one, but the government through the patent office will not engage in giving you a patent for one. They won't even read your patent application for a perpetual motion machine. But the government won't prevent you from talking about such a thing. And that, to me, is an example of the decision has been made that perpetual motion machines are so unlikely. And so uh, the decision has been made about them. Even if not everybody agrees, and even if people vociferously want to pursue it, and you want to build one, but you can't get a patent on it. Maybe you guys don't think that's as good of an example as I do, but... You don't need a patent. You can just sell them on Etsy for a fortune. So. <laughs> that was That'll awesome. prove your case. <laughs> <laughs> My dad, when he worked as a district manager for a congressman in Michigan, several times he had to go out and go talk to some guy about his perpetual motion machine because he was just causing such a ruckus at the congressional office that he had this perpetual motion machine and no one was giving him the time of day. And so to appease him, my dad went out to talk to him and see a demonstration of his perpetual motion machine, which inevitably involved him you know, like charging up some battery and, <laughs> and then see, oh, it works without it being connected to something else. <laughs> so that was a, the discussion of partial truths is a chapter two thing. In the introduction is the first thing that makes it look like some of the things that Nietzsche says that are attractive, like this whole building of individuals as being kind of the point of social action, are right in here. So this is 1859, and it was like 1888 was the book we just read. So this is quite a bit early. He mentions, for instance, just in talking about something that sounds like the master-slave morality dynamic this is in the introduction, wherever there's an ascendant class, a large portion of the morality of the country emanates from its class interests and its feelings of class superiority. The morality between Spartans and Helots, between planters and Negroes, between princes and subjects, between men and women has been for the most part creation of these class interests and feelings and sentiments thus generated react and turn upon the moral feelings of the members of the ascendant class and their relation among themselves. Where on the other hand, a class formerly ascendant has lost its ascendancy or where its ascendancy is unpopular, that the prevailing moral sentiments frequently bear the impress of an impatient dislike of superiority. So even though that's not the historical story of slave morality conquering. This is all in the context of an argument, though, about how people's moral opinions are affected by these many different pernicious influences. So that the sentence preceding all that, sometimes they're reason, at other times they're prejudice or superstitions, often they're social affections. Not seldom they're antisocial ones, they're envy or jealousy, and so on, desires or fear for themselves. These are all the things which form people's opinions and cause them to be not so reliable. And that class is a big part of that. I think the connection to Nietzsche here is that the pathos of distance that the upper class holds, right? The sense of their superiority. And then the resentment that the lower class feels, those two things are both compromising when it comes to the quality of people's opinions. And another place where I'd written each on is he's got these quotes from Wilhelm von Humboldt, who's also 1854. The end of man, or that which is prescribed by the eternal or immutable dictates of reason, 
and not suggested by the vague and transient desires, is the highest and most harmonious development of the powers to be a complete and consistent whole. The object towards which every human being must ceaselessly direct his efforts and on which especially those who design to influence their fellow men must ever keep their eyes is the individuality of power and development. For this there are two requisites, freedom and a variety of situations, and that from the union of these arise individual vigor and a manifold diversity which combine themselves in originality. So that's a really nice, and he kind of goes on to elaborate this, of Nietzsche's doctrine of becoming yourself or live your life as an art or something like this. Yeah, so Nietzsche has lots of covertly inhospitable things to say about Mill and utilitarians. But we know he read him, and you read this and you're like, he's definitely been influenced by it and borrowed a lot, or, or he's, you know, he's built on this in some sense. Like, <laughs> it's amazing. You would think he would acknowledge some sort of indebtedness to a predecessor like Mill instead of just um, saying how wrong he is. Yeah. Yeah. How English and small and boring and like that's not here at all. This is a vigorous writing style and it's in praise of exactly the same thing, but Mill emphasizes the Christian virtues. He might say the Christian virtues are not the whole story. The Christian virtues will make you small and meek and a bunch of sheep and you actually use mm-hmm. terms like sheep and cattle in here. But still, don't be obnoxious. Like, so that whole discussion we had to have about Nietzsche is like, is he really obnoxious? Like, Bill is very <laughs> upfront in trying to, he's more of a people pleaser, let's just say. Bill is. He's temperately English in his. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he's furious on the inside. <laughs> what do you mean? Mill feels like he's more or less quiet and reserved, like if you met him on the outside but that he is overflowing on the inside, whereas I feel like Nietzsche, he would be more explicitly overflowing <laughs> in interacting with him. Maybe I'm wrong about that. but They definitely both have certain social things going on that would push us toward a herd mentality that they want to condemn in very strong terms. And one of the things, Nietzsche's critique of kind of niceness is similar to Mill talks about philanthropic people who want to engage in moral and prudential improvement of our fellow creatures. These tendencies of the times cause the public to be more disposed than at most former periods to prescribe general rules of conduct and endeavors to make everyone conform to the approved standard. And that standard, express or tacit, is to desire nothing strongly. Its ideal of characters to be without any marked character, to maim by compression like a Chinese lady's foot, every part of human nature which stands out prominently and tends to make the person markedly dissimilar in outline to commonplace humanity. That sounds like a very Nietzschean kind of line. This whole chapter, by the way, we should just say, because I don't think we gave the title of the chapter, is on individuality is one of the elements of well-being. There's a whole chapter devoted to the celebration of individuality, not in the kind of caricature of Kantian individuality that's criticized by people like Sandel, this sort of Cartesian ego devoid of anything but choice, but a real fleshed out character who may deviate from societal norms and the ways in which that's a good thing. Yeah, he says, uh, among the works of man which human life is rightly employed in perfecting and beautifying, the first and important surely is man himself. But it goes on, human nature is not a machine to be built after a model and set to do exactly the work prescribed for it, but a tree which requires to grow and develop itself on all sides according to the tendency of inward forces which make it a living thing. And 
One whose desires and impulses are not his own has no character, no more than a steam engine has a character. If in addition to being his own, his impulses are strong and under the government of a strong will, he has an energetic character. Whoever thinks that individuality of desires and impulses should not be encouraged to unfold itself must maintain that society has no need of strong natures and that a general average of energy is not desirable. He wants to have a whole society full of people with very strong personalities and characters. Yeah, he says, yet desires and impulses are as much a part of a perfect human being as beliefs and restraints. So he's talking in terms of, instead of the sort of traditional Christian repression of desires and impulses, yes. you still have a strong conscience. You keep them in check in some sense. And Nietzsche, even in our last reading, talks in this way too, about the importance of both of impulse, but also of a conscience that does something constructive with those impulses. But instead of thinking about them merely in terms of suppression or repression, you think about them in terms of harmonizing them. And I want to use the word exploit, but I don't think that's a very good word. Cultivating. Yeah. But maybe sublimate is, you know, as you guys know, is my favorite word. Sublimation is the way to think about it. You don't get rid of the impulses, but you, you do something constructive with them. You don't make them weak and inactive, but you make them productive. Yeah, in part they're having a similar reaction, I think, which is that human life is not one of self-loathing and of repressing ourselves because we're sinful. It's that we should be cultivating the things that are great about us. In fact, Mill explicitly goes into this characterization when he's discussion of paganism in this chapter, right? In my book, it's on page 71, where he's gotten in this discussion of Calvinistic theory and goes after it and gives praise of pagan self-assertion versus Christian self-denial. And he says, it may be better to be John Knox than Alcibiades, but it is better to be Pericles than either. So John Knox is a Calvinist founder, and Alcibiades, for anybody who's listened to the podcast for a while, was... A slut. Oh. A lush. A slush, a lush and a slut. So, <laughs> so. And a general in, uh, what, 500 BC? A tyrant. Yes, and, and a lover of Socrates. Here's another quote from the same chapter. Human beings are not like sheep, and even sheep are not undistinguishably alike. A man cannot get a coat or pair of boots to fit him unless they're either made to his measure or he has a whole warehouse full to choose from. And is it easier to fit him with a life than a coat? Or are human beings more like one another in their whole physical and spiritual conformation than in the shape of their feet? So different persons require different conditions for their spiritual development and can no more exist healthily in the same moral than in all the variety of plants can in the same physical atmosphere and climate. The things which are helps to one person toward the cultivation of his higher nature are hindrances to another. Yes, a reminiscent of a sort of individualized virtue ethics, right? Where one's virtues are relative to one's own character and not just generic Aristotelian traits. So it might be, for me, to fulfill my potentiality might be becoming a doctor, for instance. Even just being a certain type of person who doesn't necessarily meet some sort of societal standard, but in doing that, I actualize myself. Not qua rational human being in the Aristotelian sense, but qua Wes. Yeah, but there's definitely an ethic of, I wanted to say self-improvement, but I think that word actualization is probably better. But either one would be a working of one's character and a development of that. 
in some ways, the greatest ethical lapse would be of not doing anything, of not having an active character. That's probably true for Nietzsche as well. Right. So he uses kind of virtue ethics language, but puts forth the ideal. It's not like a typical moral reformer would say, let's all imitate Christ or something. But the ideal is to be more fully an individual. Or let's all maximize utility so we can be optimally happy in some kind of dumbed down sense of, you know, having the most creature comforts and the least pain. The sorts of things that Nietzsche sort of implicitly rejects and Mill and people like him are, <laughs> he's saying precisely the opposite here. Instead, putting forth this very Nietzschean thesis that in a way the end of society for him actually seems to be making it hospitable to geniuses and to their the positive effects they have on society and preventing as much as possible conformity. I think even the freedom of speech arguments ultimately in the beginning kind of link up to that ultimate end or ideal for Mill. It sounds right. I mean, effectively, the patron saint for him is Socrates. And the example of something he wants to avoid is Socrates' execution, right? Socrates being an example of someone that there ought to be room for as a genius in the society, even though he's a gadfly and even though he may be corrupting the youth. So I'm wondering if there's a little bit of a tension in here between talking about the individual as the endpoint of virtue ethics and this admission that, well, really, like Nietzsche, he's concerned with genius, right? Geniuses are the ones whose experiments in living actually then might catch on and improve things. They're more individual than other people, less capable consequently of fitting themselves without hurtful compression into any of the small number of molds which society provides in order to save its members the trouble of forming their own character. So definitely, it's not just any individual maybe can become the virtuous ideal. It's really the geniuses are the ones he has in mind here. But then he admits that Look, most people, when they try these experiments and live off the grid and are original, they're actually going to be failed experiments. And it's just a matter of society is overall better if we permit that sort of freedom so that even if only one out of 50 nonconformists ends up being a genius, it's worth it. Otherwise, we'll have a very stagnant society. But that doesn't mean that the other 49 are actually attaining a moral ideal, even if they are the most individually themselves they could be. Say that last part again. They've attained their own individuality. They have become themselves. But maybe they're still jokers. They're still not actually going to provide in their experiments of living any way that we would want to imitate. They're useful only insofar as they're examples of nonconformity. And we need more of that, at least now, You know, in his time, he's thinking. I think this is a lesson that we, our society really at least looking at our media has gotten right in our David Brin interview. Like that's typical of pretty much every piece of fiction. Now you read is they're all wacky nonconformists. Like that's a trope now. Maybe that hasn't actually dripped into the way we treat each other. Maybe we're just as intolerant as Mill thinks that people in his time were, but at least we give quite a bit more lip service to nonconformity, even if we're not saying these people are all geniuses. I mean, the power of conformism is still, I think very strong. Yeah, maybe that's a reason that the trope keeps getting put out there because it's such a necessary lesson. And we could do, you know, a media analysis course of what's actually going on there. Is it really helping kids to be less conformist to see 
people in Stranger Things or whatever being nonconformists, being geeks, does that actually make more people okay with being geeks? I think it does. I think it helps the culture, but maybe there's something, you know, Adorno might have different ideas that, that in fact, this is putting us to sleep. Well, the geeks are never truly geeks. They're always good looking enough, at least, and often very good looking, <laughs> even when the the wearing of glasses is supposed to be a signifier for not being of the most beautiful class of people. <laughs> yeah, And the same thing with their uncoolness. Their uncoolness is cool. I don't want to lead us off track, but you can see how you would analyze those signifiers to see the way in which they sort of do homage to the idea that we would tolerate true geekiness or true eccentricity while making the person acceptable enough in, in popular terms to idolize or to sympathize with. What if the character were truly disagreeable? I mean, there are, there are of course, some shows and movies like that, but they're of a whole different sort, right? Have someone who's truly disagreeable in some sense to make them the... Anyway. Well, yeah, or even disagreeable in a racist sense. I'm thinking I watched the Clint Eastwood movie, The Gran Torino. So he kind of mm-hmm. plays this old crotchety veteran <laughs> yeah, who is quirky but in a very you know challenging those are those are the flaws to be reformed from by their narrative arc right those are they're not just something they can't do anything about or are more ingrained take someone who's truly so socially inept that even the audience recoils right you can't enjoy watching them it's that sort of character doesn't become the protagonist of the film and it's not a problem that could be solved within a narrative arc in a genuine way but anyway <laughs> honey boo boo we're gonna come back to- i feel like we're off uh, i don't i don't <laughs> think this is off topic at all because i think that one of the the harm principle of course is central in, in what we've inherited from here and it still needs to be said this message about not using social pressure to squash people is a thing that desperately is a message we still need but I think it's a good question, you know, to what extent did we get the memo on eccentricity is good? And the fact that it's so prominent in our media, I think is interesting. But yet, as you said, still in high school, isn't it still just as horrible as it always was? Of course it is. (laughs) Talking to my kids, I feel like at least in their school, maybe not as much, but you know, certainly it's not like peer pressure has gone away. That's Wisconsin. <laughs> it's Madison. <laughs> Where people are about 10 times nicer <laughs> than elsewhere. No? No, it's true. When we moved here, my son had grown up in Maryland, both of them a large part, but one had been only to school in Maryland, and completely unbidden by me, he went to school his first day, and he came back and he said, Dad, everyone is so much nicer here than they are back where we used to live. Exactly the prejudice you would have that people from the Midwest are just nicer than the people. But do they have strong spirits? <laughs> well, should we, should we talk about the limits of uh, tolerance in dealing with barbarians? This word barbarian comes up twice. One we kind of mentioned in passing in talking about Mormonism. So, you know, you might be very offended by polygamy. And he even says, you know, I don't like polygamy either. But still, the fact that these people have gone off in their own, you know, a different part of the world... And he says he doesn't like polygamy, by the way, because it's oppressive to women. Yeah. But he says, right, no one has a deeper disapprobation than I have of this Mormon institution. Both for other reasons is because far from being in any way countenanced by the principle of liberty is a direct infraction of that principle. A mere riveting of the chains of one half of the community and emancipation of the other from the reciprocity of obligation towards them. 
Still, it must be remembered that this relationship is much voluntary on the part of the women concerned in it, and who may be deemed the sufferers by it, as is the case with any other form of marriage institution. And however surprising this fact may appear, it has its explanation in the common ideas and customs of the world, which teaching women to think marriage the one thing needful, make it intelligible that many women should prefer being one of several wives to not being a wife at all. I just wanted to read the quote of, that you were saying. But the ultimate conclusion of this is that since they've gone off to their own community to do this, should, I'm not aware of any community that has a right to force another to be civilized. Like we could go send people to try to convince them that polygamy is bad, but we can't go conquer them to make this right. I think you used the word barbaric in that context. And so in that case, you can't force another community to be civilized. But if I'm looking at secondary literature about this, he was actually well known for thinking, say, the American Indians or some other, like, he also uses the term of barbarians. Despotism is a legitimate mode of government in dealing with barbarians, provided that the end be to their improvement and the means justified by actually effecting that end. Liberty as a principle has no application to any state of things anterior to the time when mankind had become capable of being improved by free and equal discussion. So he puts them in the same category as children. Exactly. Also, who are also not free and, and susceptible to our despotism. Although I like the criterion that he gives, that people should be capable of being improved by free and equal discussion. So I think you could agree to that in abstract and just say that if you're actually condemning, and he doesn't, you know, pick out the American Indians or anybody else, but a lot of philosophers from England at this time, that was, as we read in Rousseau and several other philosophers, it was a popular topic there. He's in Imperial Britain, so this is not an uncommon thing for them to think about. So you could say, oh, we tried going and having a discussion with them, but we failed, so they must be barbarians. When clearly the thing that went wrong is not that they're incapable of talking, right? If they really were incapable of talking, then they really would be barbarians in the sense, perhaps, you know, to be domesticated. But it's just that the communication did not work. The colonials were not in good faith trying to uh, evaluate their own communicative norms. And it's just, you know, are they being convinced by us <laughs> or do we have to conquer them? Right. Yeah, but I think he would be squarely in the camp that there's an evolution of culture that makes something like democratic conversation available to them. I, I think your analysis of exactly the kind of thing that would have that happened with that certain forms of social culture are not available to become democratic. They just don't. And he would be, I think, on the side of the argument that there's a kind of social progress there. So you're never going to get democratic elections in Afghanistan effectively because of tribalism. That's the argument. So it's not barbarianism in terms of... I'm thinking of this, uh, this was the criteria, I think, in Ender's Game in the Orson Scott card, where pretty much if you can't communicate with the other species, they might as well not have minds. If they're just, there's no way to get through, then we, we have to deal with them in some other way. But if communication is possible, then that's like all that's required for civilization. Well, that's a pretty low bar. Like any human being, any human culture is going to pass that bar, but you seem to be saying that what would make you barbarian is not even just not being able to communicate, but having illiberal practices. Yeah. I mean, that's the where barbarian comes from, right? It's from the Greeks said that people who didn't speak Greek, they just said bar, 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 bar. And that's the word, word barbarian came from. Literally what you're saying, that they can't communicate with you, period. But I, I think his idea, though, is just that they 
are primitive. Are their social institutions are backward? He uses the word backward elsewhere. Yeah. So he does put this caveat in, provided the end be their improvement and the means justified by actually affecting that end. So it's not a an outright defense of colonialism because we know colonialism was, in many cases, it was just naked greed. And that wasn't even, it was about finding gold or getting land or... I'd be surprised if Mill really thought that people were simply going over with altruistic ends. I found it interesting that the like the one little big enough secondary literature I was looking at, you know, characterized him as being very dismissive of colonized peoples as not being sufficiently civilized, but sort of putting aside what his literal beliefs and that's not something we'd be following him on anyway, does it follow that if like you know in afghanistan obviously a civilized country but if it's a place that is not because of their tribalism or because of their despotism that we can we don't accept them as an experiment in living well just uh, let's take a more obvious example take a place where women are terribly tyrannized and where there's female genital mutilation, and the, the sorts of things that often conservatives are bringing up to criticize certain societies. Take all of those customs which we find abhorrent and then ask the question, are we entitled to become despots over them in order to reform them? Yeah, and there's no big discussion of international relations here, so we can't really figure out what he thinks about that. There are a thought experiment in which one simply walked in with a pamphlet and could persuade everyone. You might think, okay, well, there's nothing wrong with that. But the use of force opens up, of course, all kinds of (laughs) problems, right? You have to kill a lot of people. You have to do a lot of things which are ultimately then deprive them of their freedom, deprive them of their sovereignty, and commit a lot of crimes, basically. The ends almost never justify the means, because of the contingencies of doing this, but then to ask the, whether the general principle is, is any good, you have to imagine that highly nonviolent case in which there are no complications about means and which there are no complications about the, the ends of the people going in to do the reforming. I think he's sensitive to different conditions in different places. He even says, in the beginnings of society, the state had more of a interest in controlling every aspect of the citizens because the society was so fragile that if there was any nonconformity, if there were people voicing things against the government, then it would just collapse. But we are now in a developed enough society that we're not under that sort of danger. So we can take the chains off. So sort of extracting from that to how we're going to judge other places in the world it could be that he would say that, yeah, okay, some of these, if the people are not sufficiently capable of democratic institutions, then I guess over there having despotism is okay. But we certainly should be trying to get, help them progress along the road to being able to handle the same freedoms that we have, something like that. It does feel in tension with some of the other stuff that he says. It, it amounts to a kind of force to be free and and uh, compelling people for their own good kind of thing. And given how much he rails against 
compelling people to do things for their own good. This crack in the door regarding compelling societies who aren't sufficiently developed to be despots on them for their own good seems to be at least full of lots of tension. Send them pamphlets, missionaries. That's that's what we should do. Convince. Well, even then, I think that you know some would argue that it would be possible to destroy a culture through such means, to corrupt. Yeah, to... certainly. And some people might also argue that depending upon that culture, that might be okay. So I guess we haven't talked about his views on education, and we don't really have time to get into those too much. But so in general, it might sound like he would be very libertarian about economic issues, for instance. But because economic issues, issues of trade, are issues where you're dealing with other people. So there's actually a lot of room in his viewpoint for economic interference. But he's, you know, he's read The Wealth of Nations. So he knows that in general, like, unless there's really a reason for having a restriction on anything, then let it go free. But he has no problem with all sorts of laws about how you treat your workers or stuff like that, because that's interpersonal stuff that is not really relevant to liberty as he sees it. Because that's, again, the division between things that affect only you and things that affect others. Like, any economic stuff obviously affects others. And then, as far as the education thing goes, like, even having a kid, people would think it's, obviously, you can't control my body, you can't control our sex lives. Like, that seems like it would fall under here. But the fact of you having a kid that maybe you don't have the money to pay for, to support, society could, doesn't have to, intervene there, you know, maybe even making you undergo forced labor. Like it's the same thing if you're too drunk to take care of your kids and they might be able to step in to force support. So likewise, it is the duty of parents to provide education to their kids. Like, and he really wants to make this idea of universal education, which was not the norm at his time to make that recognize that every kid has a right to an education, and maybe again, this would be the kind of thing that sort of depends on how advanced your society is, whether you can insist that this is a right or not. But given that it is possible, and, and if parents can't pay for it, then like the, the government should pay for it. However, he does not think that the government should actually educate kids, that public schools would be bad because those would make everybody the same. He's writing at a time that there's a, a very live conversation about public education. And he's, as you point out, he's adamantly against it because he thinks that it's basically a wing of the government to indoctrinate you. But so, so what that would lead to, I would think, would be different societies within your society and that you should be able to kind of choose which you're going to go into. And By the way, he's still advocating that the, pub, that, that the government pay for all the education. And that there be basic standards. He wants like public testing so that whatever education you choose, it has to make you literate. That's like at least, I think that's about the only thing. No, no, he has other, lots of other standards. But all that testing has to be factual. Literacy is just the first test for children, and then it gets more and more sophisticated as time goes on. But would would they have to, it seemed like those more specialized tests, he wants them to be standard so that you know when you're going to hire a plumber if somebody is certified, but that nobody has to go beyond literacy. I, I don't know, that's not totally clear, but... Well, no, he says that higher degrees, like PhDs and things, should not be a barrier to... They, they should not be requirements for jobs or barriers to employment if you don't have one. 
it would just be a stamp of approval. So like, yeah, it would improve your reputation and people could know that you've met this requirement. You know, we have such more detailed educational standard educational requirements, I think, than just literacy. And, and I'm not totally sure what Mill thinks about that. He, he seems to think like, yeah, you know, we can't force you to be religious, but we could, maybe this is a, just an, a, a thing for discussion, say you have to have some basic knowledge about what people's religious beliefs are, because that's a right. necessary thing to get along in the world. And so you might have to be tested about this kind of thing in general, obviously not thinking that everybody needs a, you know, a full-on Catholic education or something like that. Right. It's part of social studies. It's part of history. But it seems it's, it's very much open to there being very different communities with different educational standards, different things they consider important. So we could have this kind of multiplicity, not just on the individual level, but on the group level, right? That's in some ways comparable to the different civilizations. It's just that, you know, they would all, all the ones within England would have to be sufficiently liberal to get along with uh, his requirements of not suppressing minority opinions and the freedom to leave and, you know, really substantial stuff that actual backwards despotic regimes do not have. Yeah. And it's not something we're unfamiliar with, right? We have lots of different sorts of private schools and it's just that I think the the innovative part there is just the idea that the government should pay for all that instead of having a public school system, unless it's absolutely necessary. Puts in that caveat, unless you know, it's it's there are circumstances in which it might be the only way to prevent illiteracy and things like that. But in most cases, instead of having a public school system, you have a private school system, and the government pays for it. It's an you know, in that way, it's a. It's an interesting idea. I mean, it's not just like a school voucher idea that we debate these days where some people would would get the benefits and you'd still have the vast majority of kids not really having school choice and, the, and that sort of opportunity. What if everyone had school choice and what if it were all done privately and paid for? I think Bernie Sanders could live with that. And <laughs> Or you could have the public option, but it would just be it would be one among different options you could choose. It would not be the default that if you don't have the money, that that's what you get slotted into. Yeah. So I raised that, raised that just to, to try to connect this back to the discussion of international relations. And like, are there any special problems brought about by the fact that, so you could end up having the Amish community or something that the, the equivalent, these that have its whole own educational system, that this kind of plurality is great as far as Mill is concerned? Or do you think as soon as you have those subcultures, then separate is inherently unequal, that you're going to have some sort of repression within the individual subculture that is like, that's unavoidable. That's almost the whole reason for having the, the individual subculture. So we can treat our women in worse ways than everybody else does. Yeah, you might have those forms of oppression. I mean, he, he acknowledges that social repression is going to, to happen, but we can't socially oppress sub-communities into not being oppressive either, right? We can't, if you think it's a form of social oppression to require certain headwear, for instance, by women, but a community does that, I think it would be a far worse tyranny as as I think France has done, I'm not sure what the status is right now, in prohibiting people from doing that. Because to the woman doing that, it's not just, oh, a man made me do that. It's, this is my culture, this is my custom. I mean, many women who were subjected to that, of course, would not want to do that, but to, to at least some women, 
that's the thing. And then there are enormous social consequences. And so, and I think overall, he explicitly talks about plurality as a good thing, right? He brings up the example of Europe, where it's this is where he thinks Europe had the advantage over China. Just all these different nations and different customs and different languages allowed for what he calls a progressive and many-sided development. I'm looking here at page 65 and 66 on my, in my edition. So he's lamenting, at some point he's lamenting the way it is in England, and he says, the circumstances which surround different classes and individuals and shape their characters are daily becoming more assimilated, Formerly, different ranks, different neighborhoods, different trades and professions lived in what might be called different worlds. At present, to a great degree, in the same. Comparatively speaking, they now read the same things, listen to the same things, see the same things, go to the same places, have their hopes and fears directed to the same objects, have the same rights and liberties, and the same means of asserting them. They tend to raise the low and to lower the high, A combination of all these causes forms so great a mass of influences hostile to individuality that it is not easy to see how it can stand its ground. And so on. The demand that all people shall resemble ourselves grows by what it feeds on. If resistance waits to life is reduced nearly to one uniform type, all deviations from that type will come to be considered impious, immoral, even monstrous, and contrary to nature." There's a great argument for pluralism in this text and because it is the ground on which individuality thrives to be able to be subjected to a lot of different influences. Mark, I know you were saying people could sort of get caught in their own communities and sort of walled off from, from other communities. But I would say it's the case that in, in the United States, we do get we get exposed to a lot of difference and the pluralism there's actually a lot to be said for it and it it actually works there's a certain amount of insulation and segregation but i think people benefit from the interaction he characterizes this freedom from the tyranny of the majority from the tyranny of custom as enabling people to be innovators to be more truly themselves but the way that you hear this used as political rhetoric is like, you know, our state wants to be free from the civil rights laws. You know, this is just a historical example. So they want to be free to obey their custom and not be progressive. So it's not the example that Mill is giving. He, he wants people to be free so that they will be innovative and more truly themselves. But no, leave us alone. We want to remain sheep. <laughs> like that's the way that the demands for freedom more often as a practical matter come out, it's just Mill's going to, you know, in the same way that most individuals are going to be failures, they're not actually going to produce an experiment of living that any of the rest of us are going to follow. I think that if you don't have the freedom, then people won't have the ability to break away from custom, but freedom certainly does not guarantee that anybody's going to break away from custom. And in fact, most people are going to remain sheep. Right. That's the interesting thing about this text, because you might think he's celebrating diversity in the way it's often celebrated today. And the way it's often celebrated today, it's as if diversity means diversity of cultures. There are all these different cultural units, and that's supposed to be a wonderful thing in itself. And my, in some sense, my conformity to the customs of those different, of my particular culture, 
is meant to be this salutary expression of my identity. And that's precisely not what he means. He thinks that that he is praising that pluralism, but he's praising it insofar as we can get exposed to many different influences from many different cultures, many different points of view. And that type of variety allows us to more truly become ourselves. We get a greater, a far, far greater variety of things that we can try on to see if they are or ways of life, let's say, to try on to see, or let's say components of ways of life to try on to see if they are suitable to us so that we can sort of fashion our own very particular and even if eccentric, if we like, way of life. And of course, that's not, for most people, he doesn't, yeah, like you said, Mark, he doesn't think that they're simply going to escape the confines of their particular culture, their particular opinions. But he does say in places something to the effect that there's this spectrum and that everyone benefits from this. You know, you may not be the freest of all people and you certainly are probably not going to be a genius, but you're way better off in a pluralistic society anyway than you would be otherwise. And I think that there's no doubt that someone who lives in, for instance, in some relatively uniform, non-pluralistic society simply doesn't, they, there are lots of other benefits to that, but they, they don't have access to the sorts of benefits you have in a, in a pluralistic society. And arguably, there's going to be far greater scope for true individuality in Mill's sense in a pluralistic society than in one that is uniform. Even if you're not a genius, even if you're not eccentric, bucking the trend, all that stuff. The individual is the fundamental element that he wants to see growing, right? And pluralistic society is one way of encouraging that, right? The main good is having individuals being able to actualize themselves and having the broadest possible means for doing so. And that's the diversity that he's talking about. I think that's a good point, Wes, that he basically is is completely unconcerned about the notion of diversity of culture. What he means by diversity is diversity of individuals, and they might be cultivated by being exposed, as you say, to pluralistic aspects of society and engaging with lots of different ideas through different cultures. But the end game is cultivation of individuals. All right. Thanks, guys. I really enjoyed this. this. I like the fact that he gets so concrete in so many areas, which just makes me want to think of more concrete situations in which these ideas are problematic. One of the points we didn't talk about was the his Sabbatarian legislation. So in other words, that people should have to work off on Saturdays or, or Sundays. And it seems like that's the kind of thing that should be prohibited because it's just based on a religious prescription. You should let people work as much as they want. But he says that there is a social benefit in allowing that, you know, people to have a day off. And if you really just, you know, don't have any institutional support for this, then people will just ignore it. And so it kind of falls in the category of because this is a social thing, then you could restrict it as long as the justification for your restricting it is obviously not you know, a merely religious one, that you're making some sort of utilitarian argument for it. But to, just that, that particular example just got me thinking about the whole realm of how we set a standard hours for work of the week and that whole issue that I think way too much about. This was instructive 
and seeing really the extent to which he would allow interventions in economic, say, circumstances that I think this is just the fact that it has li- it's called on liberty. <laughs> I feel like some of the things in here, you know, we heard coming out of the arguments against paternalism and things we heard coming out of Russ Roberts' mouth and I think get used in a lot of ways that are contrary to the, the spirit and letter of Mill and that what Mill has to say is more interesting and nuanced than what the mere terms of the harm principle and restrictions on society and on social opinion to interfere in the lives of individuals. It's an important lesson, but there's more to it than that. Aren't you glad I suggested this? (laughs) I am glad. This is good. Like, so initially I had suggested a free speech episode, which we are also going to do shortly. And so I had found a few readings, including, of course, on liberty. That's offsided and the whole free speech debate. Yeah, I was like, really? We haven't done this? I even like Googled like partial examined life <laughs> on liberty to see if I had just simply forgotten that we had already done this. I'm glad we did the whole thing instead of just an excerpt from it. We'll be able to talk even more about the whole free speech thing and arguments that will attempt to limit it. I think that'll be an informative juxtaposition when we get to that. I might make my kids read this. I was thinking about that. And- I was thinking the same thing as you, Mark. You know, you saying everyone should be forced to memorize <laughs> this. I had, I just thought, really, everyone should have to read this. Speaking of despotism, and just that, that thought crossed my mind so many times. There's nothing ordinary about the book, or you know, even though in in many ways it forms the, it's part of the foundations for everything an American reflexively believes. That's even all the more reason because it's way more nuanced than. To, to use Mill's point, you know, our beliefs sort of tend to sediment and die unless we really address them and think about them. And this book is a good way of adding more nuance to your position, whether you're more prone to think that we have too much free speech or, or prone to think we have too little. I guess that's my closing after all. Any last words, Dylan? You guys summed it up good. Cool. Next time, we're going to be talking about Blaise Pascal's book, Pensée. You know, like with Pascal's Wager. Our closing song reflects my interview with John Philip Chenail on Nakedly Examined Music number 12. It is called Flavor, written and sung by Tori Amos, the version from the 2012 Gold Dust album, which Phil did the string arrangements for. I picked this not just because certain things in the lyrics, the battle of the minds, all the different flavors, the points of view that Mill encourages, but also because I think... Tori is one of those experimental life geniuses that freedom and the encouragement of nonconformity allows us to experience. You can hear the interview with Phil at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Everybody should uh, use their free speech to put constructive things up on our Facebook group, in our blog page, in our many other ways of getting in touch with us. Email us at pel at partialexaminedlife.com if you have suggestions for things for us to cover or questions or whatever. And the Supreme Court has also ruled that your donations are a form of free speech. (laughs) Take advantage of that. All right. Good night, folks. Good night. Good night. Rise above
Love. 